Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We're in a series, if you're new, called Wild and Free, and we're looking at how sin, shame, and fear keep you from being fully human. And according to the scriptures, you were designed to live in perfect relationship with God, yourself, and other people, and all of creation. Um, but that story went south, and um, we currently, to this day, struggle with how to be who we were designed to be. Would you agree? Anyone here struggle with anxiety, depression? Anyone deal with fear? Anyone deal with feelings of unworthiness? Okay, you're in a safe place. Welcome. We're all in that place. So how, through Jesus, do we learn to deal with the shame? And through Jesus, how do we learn to live out of the identity he's given us. So that's what we're talking about. And today I'm gonna pick up from last week. We um, had a great discussion on freedom and shame and um, BJ who spoke at the women's retreat was with me and we were dialoguing around the way shame shows up in our life. But today I wanna talk about really the the antidote or the cure to shame. Um, It's just looking at our identity Um, And so we're going to read a passage, a very long passage together, and then I'm going to give you a bunch of history um, and context, and then we're going to come back to that very same passage and read part of it again, and then uh, we're going to have a few more closing remarks, and then we're going to worship and pray. So that's about it. Good? And then then some of you are going off to brunch, so that's wonderful, and uh, I'm going to go home and take a nap. So here we go if my wife will let me. Uh, Paul, so, oh, we're gonna be in Ephesians. So grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's some up here. Otherwise, it's on the screen behind me, or you can download an app and read it anytime you want, all the time. You know, I just read an article that said we spend every day, so every way of, of, of a 24-hour period, the average person spends one hour every day on Facebook. Um, so, we are spending an hour of our awake hours on social media. So maybe we can take that back with some scripture. So anyways, download the app. Here we go. Paul, uh, verse one of Ephesians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we're going to read this one sentence in Greek. In Greek, this whole passage is one long run-on sentence. And it's basically praise and worship of what God has done and who he is and what that means for us. So let's read this, verse 3. This is the way Ephesians begins. Praise be to to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Christ Jesus, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Still going. In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. I'm tired after that. I need to sit down. I'm pretty sure that's self-explanatory. So why don't we just close in prayer and we'll just bring (laughs) worship team. Come on back. No, Paul, this is quite complex. And if you're new to the church, it is quite complex. And, And don't, you're not missing out. If you're like, what did he say? Yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out. And I get to study this for a living. So um, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus in the first century, and this is the opening to his letter. And it's basically praise, doxology, and worship. He is literally grabbing after the biggest, most elaborate, most magnificent words to describe who God is and what he's done for us. And what I love about Ephesians and and specifically Paul is that Paul in all of his letters will spend all this time in the first section of his, his letters telling you about who God is and what he's done for you and what that means about you. And then he'll transition to now in view of everything that God has done and who he is, live in accordance with who you already are. So that's his, that's his logic. He'll never say, all right, do all these things so that you can earn God's favor, love, and respect. He says, no, God's given you all of his love, favor, and respect. So live out of who you already are. Are you with me? So that's part of what Paul's doing. But to really grasp what's going on, we really need to dive into some culture and context because we're in the New Testament right, which is, uh, which is the New Testament is Matthew all the way to Revelation in the, in the Bible. And um, between the New Testament, there was also an Old Testament, which is Genesis to Malachi. And when Malachi ends, there's a 400-year period uh, of time that takes place before the New Testament begins. Are you with me? So I want to talk about what happened during this time and what it means for us as we, as we read this text, okay? So, um, so Ephesians, it's, the letter of Ephesians is written to a place called, uh, a city known as Ephesus. And it was, at the time, it was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, it was the, uh, the trade capital kind of of the Roman Empire. It was the epicenter for slave trade. It was the banking capital of Asia Minor and most of the Roman world. It was a significant city, so there's lots of stuff there. But um, it was occupied by the Romans. Now, in between the, the period of Malachi and the New Testament, a man named Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world. You familiar with him? Okay, I saw some head knobs, good. Um, so let me tell you about Alexander the Great, and it's important to know about this because it influences how we might read Ephesians, okay? So Alexander the Great was known for conquering new territories and establishing his empire, but he didn't just want to conquer land. He wanted to Hellenize the world. And the word Hellenize or Hellenism is this phrase to describe Greek culture and worldview. So uh, Alexander would go into a new territory and he would want that territory to, op- uh, to adopt his language, to adopt uh, Greek culture, Greek lifestyle, Greek gods, Greek art, um, Greek way of existence. It was basically lifestyle, longings, and language. So Alexander the Great would go to different places, and he would bring this whole worldview, and he thought that everyone in the world should be and think like the Greeks, Hellenized. That's what it means to be Hellenized. And how he would practically do this is he would build temples dedicated to the Greek gods, so he'd be, he'll be, he would build temples to Zeus and Hermes and, and Diana. He would also build arenas. 
And arenas were places where sports activities would take place and gladiators would fight. He also would go into places and build theaters. And so in Ephesus, there was a theater that could fit 25,000 people. We have artifacts of this today. You can go to modern Turkey and see what was built out of this conquest for Hellenism. And so dramas were, uh, were put on display, poetry, art was demonstrated. So one of the ways he would influence culture is by, by bringing art and sculptures and paintings and all of those things into new territories. And the last way was through something called gymnasiums. Have you heard of the phrase gymnasium before? Okay, so it comes from this Greek idea. And it wasn't just a place for physical activity, but although that was part of it, it was a place of philosophy. Kids would be dropped off like a daycare and they'd be educated in the Greek way of life and poetry and philosophy and art. Um, and, and at the gymnasium, men and women would, would work out in the nude because to Greek philosophy and Hellenistic culture, humans were the epicenter of the universe. So the human body in its beauty and perfection was the desired outcome. The, the human body was worshiped in Hellenistic culture. And so, um, in Hellenistic culture, they believed that uh, achievement was everything. So there was this, this phrase, I want to get it right, where uh, glory won by achievement was believed to be the straightest path to heaven. Um, their Greek culture believed that the human worth was found in your achievement and beauty. And so, in other words, Hellenism taught you that your value and your worth as a person came from your physical beauty or your physical strength, from your, your intellect and from your uh, uh, capacity to achieve and accomplish your conquest. Are you with me? So let me say that one more time. So an ancient, primitive, before Christ culture taught people and indoctrinated them in a way that said your value and worth was based on your physical looks and beauty, on your achievement, whether that be finances, success, or conquest, your physical strength, and your intellect. Can we relate to this at all? Is Hellenism alive and well in the 21st century? Interesting. So Alexander the Great conquered the new territories, building temples, arenas, theaters, and gymnasiums, uh, and, and people would adopt this lifestyle. Hellenism was all about human perfection the pressure to conform, the pressure to achieve, to look right, to act right, to believe the right things and be the right person was the ideal and that was celebrated by the culture. And anything that didn't show perfection, anything in the world, anything in your life that had imperfections or blemishes, anything that didn't amount to the ideal, anything that missed the ideal was pushed off to the margins of society. And so a few hundred years go by and eventually the Romans occupy um, the territory that Alexander the Great occupied. And they basically adopt Hellenistic culture, the Hellenistic worldview. They take the Greek gods as their own. They rename some of them. They take the philosophy. They take the art. They take the worshiping of the gods. They take the, the, the idea of human achievement and glory, victory, beauty, success, the, the human body is to be idolized in worship. They take all of that and just continue on. And Hellenism is alive, was alive and well when Paul writes to the church in the first century to Ephesus. Are you with me? 
So Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire, and this was a place where you would see statues dedicated to all sorts of gods, and those statues often revealed naked bodies because that was the the, the greatest form of worship. That was the ultimate beauty, uh, the perfection of the body at the epicenter of all the world. So that's where we find ourselves in the first century. And so what happened um, was when you you placed uh, human worth and value on achievement and beauty, and when any imperfection is pushed to the margins of society, that philosophy has radical implications for the rest of life. And so what happened in the first century, there was a very common practice in the first century where um, if you had a child that was unwanted or uh, a child that didn't meet um, the ideal you had the legal right to discard the infant. In the first century, around the time that Paul writes to the Ephesian church, Paul is dealing with a culture that sees human perfection as the ideal and anything, from, anything else goes off to the margins. When Paul writes this letter, he knows very well that there are people in society and culture that had experienced the side effects of Hellenism to the point where men and women, when they had a, a child that was deformed or handicapped or was anything outside of the ideal, they had the uh, legal right to take their child outside of the city walls. Ephesus was next to a mountainside. They would walk their children, their infants, to the top of the mountain, and they would leave their children, their unwanted infants, and leave them to die. And it's called the exposing of infants. They would leave them in the wilderness and let them die and walk back down to the city. This was a common practice in the first century. There are some ancient authors and writers that we have, we've collected over the years that prove this ideology. Here, I wanna read some quotes to you. Exposure of infants. Here's where, where it comes from. So this is a guy who is in 1 BC traveling and he says, he writes to his life. We found this, this letter. He says, now, Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg you and beseech you to take care of the little child. And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. Good luck to you when you have a child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. This is, this is what happens when society and culture think that your value and worth is based on what you look like and what you can achieve. When you, allow, and when you don't recognize that you're made in the image of God, when you have gods competing for your life, according to this philosophy, right? So there are all sorts of Greek gods. And there's battling going on in the cosmos. And you're trying to prove your value and worth to the gods. This is what happens to society. Infants are exposed and done away with. Like, just throw out the trash. Uh, go to the next one. Here's uh, Seneca. He writes this, he's a philosopher, and he's talking about what was the, the common practice. We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into a sickly cattle, lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. Go to the next slide. Um, here's Socrates. Uh, in, in, Bill and Ted, anyone? Anyone? Excellent. Okay, just, anyone, can I just get some love for that, that? Anyone like Bill and Ted's? Okay, thank you, you're welcome. I'm just seeing where I'm at, because some of you, I don't know. But anyways, the children, listen to what Socrates says. It's not Socrates. The children of inferior parents or any child of others that is born defective, 
they'll hide in a secret and unknown place as is appropriate. It is if indeed the guardian breed is to remain pure. Do you see how evil, yeah, that's right. Evil this is, it's tragic. And then one more, this is, um, there's a, a, a man who was the f- most famous gynecologist in the second uh, century. He wrote for midwives all over the world on how to, how to not only how to work through childbirth, but here's what he writes. This is like his, his kind of thesis on what it means to have a healthy child. And he writes this, he says, the child should be perfect in all its parts, limbs, and senses, and have passages that are not obstructed, including the ears, nose, throat, urethra, etc. Its natural movements be neither slow nor feeble. Its limbs bend and stretch. Its size and shape should be appropriate, and it should respond to natural stimuli. And then he goes on later on, and he says this, and by conditions contrary to those mentioned, the infant not worth rearing is recognized. So in the first century, people would take their unwanted babies, those that didn't measure up to cultural standards, walk them up to the mountainside and leave them to die. This is what we read about in the first century context. Ephesus was the epicenter for slave trade. Slave trade. There were a group of people that knew of this practice because it was common, it was legal, that would go up to the mountainside, take the discarded babies, and rear them to be slaves and prostitutes in Ephesus. Because it was cheaper to raise a child into slavery than to purchase a slave at the right age. Ephesus was also the epicenter for Artemis worship, which the way you worshiped Artemis was through temple prostitution. So what do they do? They just have slaves. So do you see how the context matters? Now, The reason the context matters is because we're talking about a culture that said any blemish, defect, deformity is to be discarded and not worth raising. And the place that they would do this is outside of the city. Unwanted children would come and become slaves that were raised up as slaves um, in a culture, in a society, in a city that that had a slave trade as one of their primary forms of economy. You with me? Okay. Paul writes later in Ephesians to the church. Now, What's important to know about this is what the church was back then. So he would write letters, and the church, basically, they would have these letters written to them, and there would be groups of 15, 20, maybe 30 people in a house church. So it'd be, let's go over here. I'm going to favor the right, the left side today, the more blessed ones over here. So let's pretend this is our church, right? No, you guys have forgotten about. Um, We'll talk about you in a second, okay? When we talk about sin and slavery and stuff, just a second. Um, just kidding, I'm kidding. So it would be like this, right? So there's proximity, not a guy on a stage. This would be our little church right here, you guys right here. And what would happen is we'd get this letter and we'd know Apostle Paul, we know about him, maybe we met him, we remember him, we know that's how the church started. And we get this letter and we gather in our homes, we were under persecution. And Paul later on in, in Ephesians will talk to slaves and masters in the church because there are some that are masters in the church and there are some that are slaves in the church. He'll talk about husbands and wives, parents and kids. He'll talk about some of us that don't have enough money to go around, some of us that have lots of money. And we will be together and it's flesh and blood, it's, it's face to face. And we get this letter and we're gonna read it real quick. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. We're just gonna read a couple of verses. Now I want you to listen with the, the backdrop of Hellenism, with the black backdrop of beauty, with the backdrop of slavery, of orphans growing up to be slaves, uh, uh, image, achievement, with that in your mind, let's read this. Praise be 
to the, uh, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless, or the translation, without defect in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption into sonship through Christ Jesus according to his pleasure and will. Do you see how subversive this is? They wouldn't have been debating Calvinism, predestination, and free will. They would have heard that they were chosen before the creation of the world. They would have heard that they weren't discarded. They were picked up, and they were told an alternative story. You see, the story they heard was that there were gods that had power, and they had to please those gods, that their value came from what they looked like or what they didn't look like. Their value came from what they achieved or what they didn't achieve. Their value came from all sorts of other things that culture lied to them about and said you have to, you have to go up to the mountain and, be, and discard your babies only to hear that, that Paul tells a different kind of story. He says the God of the universe is the God that goes up to the mountaintop and takes the discarded babies and said, you are my boy, you are my girl, you are perfect in my sight, holy, set apart, sacred for a specific task. You are blameless. You are without defect. You are without blemish. You have been predestined. You have been chosen before the creation of the world to be adopted, which is a legal term we'll get to in just a second, as my son and daughter. Do you hear? They're not gonna debate the theology. They would have wept. They would have said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that there's another way to live. That I wasn't, I wasn't discarded or neglected or abandoned. I was chosen. I was set apart. Anyone here need to hear this today? Amen. This is what Paul writes as the beginning of the Ephesian letter. Do you see how profound this is? It starts here because every other religion that you can possibly go after, every other self-help, Dr. Oz, Oprah, every other Deepak Chopra yoga is gonna make you do all sorts of things. In other words, climb up the mountain of achievement so that you can have acceptance from some deity somewhere else or reach nirvana. But our God goes up for us and brings us back down and says, it's done. You're chosen. You're my boy. You're my girl. Live out of who you already are. Rather than trying to earn it, we just get to receive it. You can't, you can't earn your way to be my son. You are my boy. Ezra can't sit at my table and beg to eat every meal. No, that's given to him. In my household, you'll have enough. He doesn't have to bring his color to me and seek my approval. I'm lavishing love on my two and a half year old when he draws figures and paints on my garage with the wrong permanent marker. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I love your creativity, boy. Now go get me a washcloth. <laughs> right? But what do we do? What do we do? We just buy into Hellenism alive and well in our life, in our, in our world. And Paul begins with saying, you can't, you can't even, you guys, do you see how beautiful the imagery is? He says, you, you've been adopted into sonship. Okay, in all of the scripture, 
I don't believe there's a more significant phrase or word to describe the redemptive work that God is doing in your life other than this phrase, adopted into sonship. It's, it, it, in Greek, uh, it, it's son placing. Okay, now, it's, it's, uh, it is son, so we can't say it's gender neutral. It's not gender neutral, but what, what Paul means is you, you have been adopted as sons and daughters, okay? It's a legal term, adoption. That Paul, Paul uses a specific legal term that has all sorts of implications for what it means for us to be adopted as followers of Jesus, as sons and daughters of the Father and the Most High. There's nothing more profound than this phrase. Okay, so, so again, history, first century. If you were a wealthy person in the Roman context and you and your wife did not have biolog- biological kids, you could adopt a son into the family. And the, the implications of adoption means that that person has the legal right to inherit all of your stuff, he acts on your behalf. He's literally your family now. So he's, he's in your family. He's given a new name, a new identity, a new purpose, new privilege, new father, new mother, uh, new, new uh, privileges, all, all sorts of status in society. And the way you would go about adopting is it was a very public thing. So you would make known to the community that you were going to adopt someone. And this, the person, most likely, if you didn't have biological kids, they were most likely a servant in your household or a slave. And you would make known to the community, this person is going to be a son, son placing. And, and then the community would respond as witnesses, and the son would have to accept. And what would happen is they would be given, the son would be given a new identity. And the first thing that happened before the identity even went on to him is, as a slave, you were indebted to the family. All of your debt would be wiped away. And then you're given a new name, a new identity, a new family, new privilege, new purpose. Is that amazing? So when Paul writes in Ephesians later on, he'll say, you were, uh, you were once slaves to sin and death. You were objects of wrath. Uh, you were all these things. But in Christ, you are adopted as sons and daughters. You're, you're in the family. You have a new identity. The, the, the sinful way is gone. You're holy. You're set apart. You're without sin, without defect. God has made you worthy. He's given you every spiritual blessing. Do you see how powerful the identity piece is? This is powerful language, and Paul is giving it to us as the church that in Christ, this is what we do. Now, what's fascinating, too, just a side note about first century context adoption. Slaves were the absolute most vulnerable people in society, right? They didn't have rights. They were seen as inferior. You wanted a male. Did you see that, that, that article? They didn't even want females. as They didn't want daughters. They had no power in first century context. And so slaves had no power, they were inferior, they, didn't, they, they were in debt, um, they had no place in society. And, and, and Paul uses this language as you go from slavery, which is the idea of being orphaned, to being adopted as sons and daughters. So there's this, there's this transference of inheritance, royalty, identity, acceptance. But the other thing is this, in the first century, you had the legal right to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Disown. You had the legal right to disown your biological children. So if your son didn't behave well, some of you are like hitting your sons right now. If your son, you're like, yeah, I'm going to disown you. You better watch out. They, they literally had the legal right, so you would be kicked out of the family. But check this out. In first century context, an adopted son could never be disowned. Legally, in other words, you can't do anything about it. You are always going to be his little boy and his little girl. Is that amazing? 
So when it comes to God and Paul announces to the church that you're holy, you're blameless, you're adopted, son placed in, he's saying there's nothing you can possibly do to go allow that thing to go south. There's nothing you can do to change that reality. You are in. So act like it. So behave like it. This is who you already are, so live out of who you are. This is the the language that we use throughout the past. This is your identity. So you're designed to live in perfect relationship with God. He's done everything to do away with your past, your sin, um, your false identities, um, your shame, all that unworthiness. That, That has nothing on the inheritance that God gives you, on the power he gives you, on the authority, on the life giving experience. So now live out of that reality. Don't live out of shame and fear and sin. Live out of being an adopted as a son and daughter of the Most High. Is that good news? I think that's really good news. It's, 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 it, but, but why do we struggle with it so much? Can we just, so I say all that, but how many of you are currently struggling with all the other stuff? The sin, the shame, the guilt, the unworthy. Okay, is, can we get some participation? Just, it's your, <laughs> hi, I'm Darren. I'm terrified. I'm full of shame and sin. Okay, we're in a good place. Good? I'm, I'm glad we got that over with. <laughs> I thought you guys really were doing well and I'm just going to leave because I shouldn't be teaching. (laughs) But we struggle with it. In the same way, I've heard stories, in the same way that children that come from very challenging um, relationships or uh, uh, difficult circumstances, they were raised up in terrible situations, tragic situations. They They were orphaned as kids. The same way that they struggle. Have you heard stories of when they get adopted? into healthy families and healthy life? Have you heard stories of, of how hard it is to transition into that, that new family? Have you heard of these stories before? So um, I just had, uh, I met a friend, a new friend, his name's John, and, and uh, a few m- months ago we were hanging out and he told me the story of how he adopted two young girls from Ethiopia, him and his wife. And um, he was telling stories about that transition. They were really young, they were like four and five when he got them. Um, and then he's had them for a few years now, but he's telling about the struggles that they, they currently have from live, moving from Ethiopia as orphans to living in his household in Orange County. And uh, he was, we were at this party and he was like, you see that, that you know, plate of food over there, all the food that's you know, on the table, the platter, the spread. He's like, if, he said, if my daughters are here, they couldn't interact with you without being distracted and sidetracked by the food that's sitting out over there. He said, uh, he said, if they were here, they would be watching how many people go over there. They'd be anxiously waiting to see how much food was left until they just filled their plates and then they would sit around their plates with food. And, I said, and, he, and he said, what we've developed for them is, uh, is a simple phrase to help remind them that they're no longer orphans. Um, and it was this, it was, it was, it's a simple thing. He says, we, we tell them almost every single day, all the time, we say, uh, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. You see, when you're orphaned as a kid and you experience the trauma of hunger and not knowing where your next meal is gonna come from, your body produces fear that something bad's gonna happen. And you learn what is called scarcity mindset. 
and you begin to organize your life, your body naturally responds and you begin to plan and prepare for the worst case scenario without having to think about it, even as a three and four year old little girl. And when you've experienced that trauma, that mindset stays with you. That idea that I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. I don't know where, who's going to get it. I don't know if I'll be taken care of. So I have to collect and hold on to and make sure that this lasts me until the next foreseeable future. But when you carry that orphan scarce mindset into a healthy family where there's now a family that will always provide for every meal, breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. It takes years for that that orphan mindset to get out of them. To this day, they struggle with anxiety about food. They have loving parents. They are in a loving household. There, there will always be enough for them to eat. In fact, they do disciplines regularly where they give them a, uh, he gives them a bag of carrots. And he says, you're gonna have breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. And I'll give you these carrots on top of that. And you can eat as much as you want whenever you want, just in case. And before they get to lunch and then the snack, the, the carrots are gone. We do the same thing, don't we? we? We live with the same anxiety and fear. I don't know if God will provide for the next thing. I don't know if I can make it to the next place. And we live with this mindset that I've done something wrong. I'm not gonna be good enough. I don't have worth. Worth is based on your, your current relationship with your boyfriend, which turns sexual because that's how you identify love. You look at how much money's in the bank, the clothes that you wear, what people post on Facebook, and you compare. You look at your past, and you define yourself by what's been done to you that one time or what you've done to that one person that one time, and you live in this reality where you don't know if you'll ever measure up or ever be enough, and God is desperately trying to get you to the place to live as an adopted son and daughter. There's always enough. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, all done. And I don't have a, a cute phrase to remind you of who you are other than to say over and over and over again that God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be. You are never going to earn enough. It's already earned. You're never gonna achieve enough. It's, you can't achieve anymore. You're, you don't have to starve yourself to fit the picture, the ideal of an airbrushed false reality. You don't have to look for love far. It's within us. It's found in God. That is what God wants you to know today. Stop worrying about who you are and be who you already are. In order to be free, we need to accept this identity. Freedom in your life, whatever freedom looks like. You want freedom from anxiety, depression, broken relationship after broken relationship, from self-harm, from addiction. At some point, you need to accept the reality of who you already are. At some point, you just have to embrace that you are loved by God as you are and not as you should be and receive that. That's where freedom begins. The other thing that you have to accept is what God is really like, right? You have to speak out the lies of what you think God is like that is false and untrue. God is not a cosmic tra traffic cop who wants to give you a ticket every time you mess up. God is not a God of karma that is saying, you know, what you do today is gonna come back around and cause you some pain. God's not causing harm on your life. 
God's not disappointed in you. God's not angry with you. God's not uninterested in your life. He's climbed up the mountain. He's done everything he could so that you can be his little boy and his little girl. That's what you're invited into. And freedom only begins when those two realities come colliding in the middle because this is who you are. So, t- yeah, so let me close with this. Um, my friend, I have these friends that I just met, again, adopted stories. It's amazing. They, um, their names are Jed and Vicki Topher. And when they were in their early 20s, they were dating. And before they even got married or engaged, God told them that they would one day adopt. Uh, eventually, they got engaged and married. And then they uh, decided to start a business together. They started a photography business, and it just took off. And they spent all this time working as photographers. People were coming from around the world. They were, no- they were known from around the world. And their early 20s turned into their 30s. And they realized if they wanted to start a family, they had to start uh, investing time in a family, and they, they knew God called them to adopt, so they started the process of adoption. But anyone, that here, anyone here that has experienced this or know friends that have gone through the process of adoption, it is costly, it is hard, and it is difficult. And that was true for their story. Years go by, and nothing happens. Eventually, um, uh, Vicky goes to Guatemala and talks to a woman who talks about the crisis in Nepal. One out of 28 kids in Nepal, one out of 28 people are orphaned. And here are some pictures. I'll just have them come up of Nepal. These are what she sent. She's a photographer. You can just go go through most of those if you would, Renee. And um, so she and her husband decided that they're going to go through Nepal to get a baby over here. And they went through the process. Years go by. Um, Nothing's happening. It's becoming exhausting. Their their business just keeps growing. Vicky says, you know, I didn't think it was going to happen, so I bought... Uh, a convertible two-seater, not thinking that I would have a baby, but God has a sense of humor because shortly after I made that purchase, um, I got contacted, they got contacted from an agency in Nepal and they introduced them to their baby, Nima. And they paired them with Nima. And, and Nima uh, uh, was waiting for them. And so a few months go by in preparation for the process. It takes lots of paperwork and all sorts of things. And the day before they, they leave, the U.S., makes a policy shift and shuts down all visas for babies being adopted from Nepal. And so uh, they were told by the government to not go. They're told by the Nepal government not to go. They were told by the agency they don't think it's going to work out, but they had been in this long process and they, they thought that's not right. God already showed us that this was our daughter. And so they fly over and they get there on August 7th, I think it was, and they meet Nima, and with a few, within a few days, Nima was their baby girl. Within a few days, they were living in Nepal with their baby girl with one giant obstacle. The U.S. government would not allow them to bring Nima home. But what do parents do for their loving, for, for when they love their child? What do loving parents do for their children? Everything, Everything they possibly could. Vicky and uh, Jed... Uh, uh, kept fighting for it. They hired a, a lawyer. They hired investigators. Weeks turned into months. Their business had to shut down. They sold cars, bikes, got loans, got help. 
to stay. It took six months where Jed lived back home while Vicky lived in Nepal for six months separated so that they could bring their baby girl home. And after six months, they finally got the visa and brought their little daughter home. And check it out. Here's what she looks like today. And it says, I was worth the wait. And she was. She's a beautiful daughter. It was their daughter. But I realize there's nothing miraculous about the story because this is what loving moms and dads do. They do everything for their children. And if you don't have that image of God in your head, it's the wrong image of God. He will go up the mountainside, up and down, up and down. He will travel across the universe to make it so that you can be home in his arms. This is who you are. So be daddy's little boy and be daddy's little girl. And from here, only here, will you learn to experience freedom in depression, anxiety, addiction, broken relationships, self-hatred. Here is the root of all the problems that you were designed for a relationship with a loving God. Just embrace it. How much does adoption cost? For the child, nothing. Because loving parents do that. For Vicky and, and Jed, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Thousands and thousands of miles. Countless phone calls, FaceTime, Skypes, all of that to get their baby girl home. But that's expected. What does God give? Everything. What do we get? Everything. What does it cost us? Absolutely nothing. In view of that, give everything that you have away. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.